Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with commentator, broadcaster and author Jane Caro. Just Flesh and Blood is the third and final of Jane's exploration of the life of Queen Elizabeth I. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I explore books, writing, and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Great Conversations is a way for me to enlarge that discussion. It's a weekly podcast expanding and sharing the stories and issues that make our world tick. I get behind the scenes and talk to the creators of the books that you love. And before we get to my conversation with Jane, can I ask you to help me share Great Australian Writing with the world? This week, I'd love if you could share great conversations with two book-loving friends. You know who they are. They trust your opinion and recommendations when looking for a read. So why not recommend them to Final Draft's Great Conversations? They get the books, and together, we all get to spread the love of Australian writing. Now, Just Flesh and Blood sees England's Queen Elizabeth I at the end of her life. Still the Virgin Queen, but surrounded by attendants who no longer quail at her authority. Throughout the narrative, we pass back and forth through her memory and come to know the woman who understands that beneath the inviability of her crown and Gloriana, she has always been just flesh and blood. My name's Andrew Popel, and I am joined in the studio by Jane Carrow. Jane is an author, she's a commentator, a columnist. I could use a term like Renaissance woman, but it would seem a little naff given our topic today. <laughs> yeah. Attentive Final Draft fans have, have heard you, Jane, on the show over the years, discussing your memoir, Plain Speaking Jane, and the second of your Elizabeth series. Today we're here to discuss the final chapter in the reign of Elizabeth I, Just Flesh and Blood. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now... Just flesh and blood for people. I was actually thinking about this as, as I was writing my notes, and I was so presumptive of people's knowledge of Elizabeth. I reckon a lot of people would would know the name. Yeah. Um, uh, Queen Elizabeth's a, a dairy girl. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Queen, this is Queen Elizabeth, first of her name, to borrow some Game of Thrones uh, popular That's vernacular. Right. Yes, yes. And in Just Flesh and Blood... House Tudor. <laughs> of House Tudor. Yeah. We've got England's Queen Elizabeth, the first, but she's at the end of her life. She's still the Virgin Queen, surrounded by attendants, but they no longer quail at her authority. And Elizabeth ruled between 1558 and 1603, and in Just Flesh and Blood, we pass back and forth through her memory. We come to know the woman who understands that beneath the inviability of her crown, she's always just been, been just flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's get down to brass tacks. This is the third and final book of your series, written from the first person, People familiar with your writing and your commentary know you're enormously engaged on a range of issues, including things like education, uh, women's rights and equality. But where does Elizabeth and her history fit into all of this for you? Yeah, it's um, a lot of people find that a bit of a conundrum because, after all, she's a monarch and I'm a Republican. But <clears throat> I always think you have to judge people according to their time. And she was a revolutionary figure. And when I was a a young girl, I was desperately looking for heroes, female heroes, role models. And I grew up, I mean, I was a child in the 60s, and there just weren't any. There just weren't any. And any that there were, like Joan of Arc or whatever, they all came to a horrible end. You know, there was no no one you could look at and say, yes, yes, I want to be like her. Boys, they were thick and far. You know, they were everywhere, male role models that you could sort of aspire to to be like or 
or that could encourage you to try things and, and think that you might have a chance of succeeding. For girls, I think now, pretty much deliberately, there weren't any. And um, Elizabeth was like a be- beacon of light. She was like this one, and, and it's amazing, she was a monarch, but she's a subversive figure because she is a... And a transgressive figure because she is a woman who ruled. She was an absolute monarch. None of this constitutional malarkey for Elizabeth of Tudor. She was absolute. Her word was law. And she ruled on her own. And she refused to ever marry or have children. And in her period of history, that was a revolutionary act. It simply did not happen, particularly for royal women, unless... Previously, they might have gone into a convent, but that usually happened when they were widowed. So they'd already done their duty and produced uh, princes who would go on and rule kingdoms. That's all they really were. They were portals through which other people, hopefully men, entered the world. And um, she just refused to be that. And so when I was young, for me, she was a hero. She was someone to cling to that there was a way to live as a woman in this world that was not utterly about circling around some bloke. And I still think that for young women and men, she remains a really important figure in history, not just because of the start of the British Empire and the defeat of the Spanish Armada and the Protestant Reformation and all those things that obviously are important, but also for the beginnings of a way of seeing the way women could be in the world. Mm. Reflecting on your values, though, do you see now other role models that you might if you were if you were a girl now looking for role models that you would look to oh there are many more now Mm. um it's been an absolute um change since i was young um and also i think one of the things that i have been doing almost without consciously realizing it people like uh, julia baird have been doing it and also um these are just women off the top of my head leslie kennold who wrote the book of rachel which is about uh if jesus had had a sister what her life might have been like and there are other women who are re-looking at famous women in history through a female eye because basically women in history until relatively recently have only been seen through male eyes and they've often been given a pretty hard time. People like Catherine the Great, you know, they, they, they focus on their um, promiscuity or they focus on their, tyran- you know, tyrannical. They sort of see them as anomalies. Um, they don't look at them in a positive way by and large. And Elizabeth got the most positive press probably, mm. but she still gets this what was she doing being a virgin? There's, there's all this stuff about maybe she was really a man, you know. Uh, quite <gasps> that's bizarre. One I've not, that's one I've not actually heard. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so did that actually inform your decision to write from the first person? Um, it was it was a much more, as I, I think it often is for novelists, it was a much more um, spontaneous kind of um, act than that. I just, I wanted to write a novel. I had been writing very bad literary novels and uh, someone I knew got an interest in a historical novel and I thought, oh, maybe I should try a historical novel. And then I thought, but what could, who would I want to spend all that time researching? And I thought, oh, Elizabeth I, I know a lot about her. I like her. I like reading everything about her. Oh, let's give it a go. And I'd always had this thought um what would it have been like to be her because she was a she's always seen as this sort of icon mm. almost like a brand really but she was a real person i mean as you said i keep going back to that she's flesh and blood she's flesh and blood and i so the my my beginning thought was what would it have been like to be her and that's where i started and what is it like getting behind gloriana in all her complicated splendor the the circumstances are so different not just in 
in historical time, but in circumstance. Oh, it, it, look, it's a, it's a, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating journey, but a lot of it's quite sad as well. Um, the thing that really strikes me, particularly the further I get into her life, like the older she becomes, and in a way, the more powerful and the more admired she becomes. Because even in her own time, you're right, she was called Gloriana. You know, mm. there was this sense of her as being uh, almost supernatural, um, and. Uh, there's a loneliness that I think um, is palpable about being her because she has no peers. Mm. Um, now, I think that the history has ignored her female friendships, of which there were many. And there are female writers now beginning to write more about, like Catherine Carey. There's a great book that mm. um, I use as a secondary source called Call Rotto, which is about her relationship with Catherine Carey, who was probably her half-sister. Mm. Um as well as one of her main ladies in waiting. But all the stories of the women of that time are terribly sad. I mean, Catherine Carey had 16 children and died of exhaustion, basically, after the birth of the final, the 16th, in her 40s, um, just worn out with this dreadful child-rearing. So I'm just trying to do the maths on that. That's extraordinary. Oh, she started out when she was about 16. Well, there was no contraception. Exactly, yeah, precisely. So women were just bait. They were were constantly pregnant and and lactating and pregnant and Mm. lactating, and you were just like a brood mare. I mean, that's another reason I think why Elizabeth I took a look at the life of a woman who had... Uh, regular sex with a man uh, and went, well, that's 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 hell. If and I've got a choice, I'm not doing it. You're quite co- scornful through her perspective of that in, in the book. She was... Um, that I haven't made up. She mm. is um, famous for uh, hating marrying. You know, it, it, it annoyed her. There's another thing, of course, that we forget, and again, I think it's partly because she's seen through mostly through men's eyes. Her father chopped her mother's head off before she's three. Mm. So that might have an effect deeply, you know, in the core of your being about how you feel about the whole business of marriage. She saw it, I think, as incredibly risky for women. Mm. I think Elizabeth's genius, and I don't think it's too big a word to use, was in her clarity of mind. Mm. She could see what was going on around her. She didn't pretend that things were different from how they were. And that made her, of course, an extremely effective leader because mm. she didn't self-deceive. I want to come back to that power that she exerted, but also the female relationships that you just talked about. But first, I'm, I'm interested, you've, you've told me about your relationship with Elizabeth. How are you finding or how have you found people are engaging with your earlier chapters on Elizabeth's life in Just a Girl and Just a Queen? Um, well, people are, are very kind. I mean, I guess those who hate the book probably just don't bother to tell me that. But um, That's a kindness in itself. Yes, of course it yeah. is. Yes, On the, the internet age, we rarely get trolls shutting up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, if you're a troll, you get blocked by me. But um, no, mostly people tell me that they really identify, that they find her life fascinating, that they can really empathise. A lot of people mention the loneliness, mm. the isolation, the fact that she had everything and yet... <clears throat> The one thing she could never have was a really close, loving relationship with anyone. Pardon me? Does it seem that she's resonating as almost a contemporary figure for people, or are they seeing her historically? No, I think that she's resonating as Mm. another human being. Mm. And and I'm, I'm really pleased with that because I think we have a tendency in our current era to want to emphasize and 
indeed back then we did the same thing. We love emphasising the differences between people. We like to make a big deal about the fact that somebody lived at a different time or has a different colour skin or, or um, you know, is a millennial or a baby boomer or any of these nonsensical constructions that we slap around people as convenient Neither. little boxes. Exactly. <laughs> um, and none of the above, I always say. But... Um, I like to emphasize our similarities, which I think are much greater. And that in fact, the, the job of the novelist, it seems to me, is to engage in a form of, if you're writing historical novels like I do, time travel, where basically you get people, your reader, to travel through time in their imagination and occupy the skin of someone who lived, you know, centuries before them but actually understand on an emotional and visceral level what that might have been like Mm. and that these were just people, just like us, but living in very different circumstances. But it was the circumstances that are different, not the humanity. Well, I think this relates to my next question because... In Just Flesh and Blood, we have Elizabeth. She's awaiting her death. It's not too much to say she's awaiting her death. She's she's ruminating on the fact that the end is is close. But it's not death in the tower, as she might have suspected in her earlier life. But amidst her counsel, she's at an advanced age. We can speculate over, over what killed her, and the internet will. She, <laughs> she, and she's casting her mind back across her reign. And in the language you use... Uh, the imagery is visceral and it embodies the queen from her prowess with the bow to her bodily desires. I mean, she was the virgin queen, but that doesn't mean she never felt anything. No. How did you want to engage with these contradictions and especially the, the virgin mystique that, that always encompassed her? The virgin thing is so interesting. It's very hard for modern audiences to believe that she really was a virgin. The first question almost at any session that I do at any kind of festival about her, they, the first question is, oh, she wasn't really a virgin, was she? Yes, I think she probably was. There's so many, there's no indication she wasn't and she was never alone and the rumours would have been flying and nothing's ever been substantiated and if she was fertile, far too dangerous for her to have penetrative sex. Now, that doesn't mean she didn't do all sorts of other things with Robert Dunn. Mm. But um, I, I think she definitely was a virgin. I think she was because she didn't want to die in childbirth and because her mother, her father cut her mother's head off and all sorts of – and she could keep her power that way. There are all sorts of good reasons for her not to want to have sex with a man. Mm. Um, but I also think that the thing about um, the virgin thing was that it was so powerfully clever, but I don't know that she knew that at the time. I think she did it. For personal reasons, because she applied her intelligence to her life and she said, this is how to survive. Hmm. This is how I keep control over my own destiny. And I saw what happened to my mother when she threw her destiny in with a powerful bloke. Hmm. It didn't end well. I need to hold on to my own power, which makes her a very, very contemporary figure in many ways for women. But the other thing is... There's a Protestant Reformation going on. There's a major religious figure that does not make the transition from the Catholic Church to the Protestant Church, and it is the Virgin Mary. Mm. So basically, ordinary English um, citizens went from worshipping the Virgin Mary to the Virgin Queen. Mm. You can see what a powerful transition uh, object, in a way, she becomes for the population, which accounts for a lot of her popularity. And she was a very modern PR uh, mm. genius. I don't think she got this at the beginning. That's not why she did it. But I think she may have started to realize just what a powerful image it was and how important a figure she became, almost, as I say, supernatural. Mm. It also may- meant that she could occupy 
a, a, an almost genderless position. Mm. Because I think one of the basis bases of misogyny is uh, actually male discomfort with their own sexuality. It's not mm. really to do with women. It's to do with men's fear of that sex drive, which, you know, they f- may feel sometimes, you know, very much under the, th- in the thrall of. And they therefore project that discomfort onto women. And there's a f- form of self-disgust in the idea of women being these um, acceptors of male bodily fluids. And the hatred of homosexuality, I think, may well, you know, the fear of it, I mean, may well come out of that as well. There's a sort of weird thing that goes on in a lot of um, male psyches. Because she was a virgin, she was almost not a woman. Mm. So she could be uh, allowed to be the power. Yeah. So I think the virgin thing was actually incredibly important, personally, politically, but also spiritually and psychologically for the English. It becomes a double-edged sword for her, though, as she she has no survivor, she has no succession. Um, throughout, your Elizabeth um, is preoccupied, as I'm sure Elizabeth was, she's preoccupied with this underlying concern over succession, how the country will fare. And we now know that England tended to enjoy periods of unheralded stability under its female monarchs. Mm. How would those concerns have felt for Elizabeth, though, on her deathbed, in your imagining and, and your understanding? I think I think because she was such a commonsensical person, which mm. I think is one of the things that has always appealed to me, the, the sorts of statements she made like, I don't want to make a window into men's souls. In other words, I don't care what you believe in your heart, just obey the law. Mm. You know, uh, another time she spat out at somebody who was having some sort of religious, you know, debate, you know, there is but one Lord Jesus, the rest is a dispute over trifles. So she had a very pragmatic, commonsensical approach to things. And I think by the end of her life, she knew who her successor was. She had for a very long time. It was James the Sixth of Scotland, who then became James the First of England, uh, Mary Queen of Scots' son. But she also knew that if she ever named him officially, that that would open the door for a whole lot of people to say, what do we want this old bat for? Let's get it. Men should be in charge. It's the natural way of things. God ordains that men should be in charge. Let's fetch him and get rid of her. So she recognised that to survive it was better not to officially name him. But I think she knew really from the moment that his mother was executed and he was that he would be the person who inherited her throne if he survived longer than she did. Mm -hmm. So at the end she knew that was going to happen. But I think she'd also come to the point where she realised she'd done what she could do. And that, you know, the future, as I have her say, was no longer any business of hers. But she knew that the transition would happen um, easily because there was no there was no competition. He was it. Mm. By not having any children of her own or any daughters, for example, she decomplicated the succession. Yeah. I read I read some speculation that Elizabeth may have experienced depression in her later life um, and melancholy, particularly around aspects of her life. Uh, the execution of her cousin. Did you want to reflect anything of this state of mind? Yes, um, certainly in uh, Just a Queen, the um, the book that precedes this one, which is all about that relationship between Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. And by the way, they never met. Mm. Anyone who tells you they did, any film that shows you they did, is mucking about with the facts. They never met. Um, th- that relationship, I think, was profoundly distressing to Elizabeth. Uh, it pulled her in many different directions. She thought Mary was a fool, and she has some fairly good 
she has some fairly good evidence that Mary was a bit of a fool. Mm. Mary was a much more conventional and traditional woman than um, Elizabeth I. It's almost like looking at Hillary Clinton versus, I don't know, um, Mike Pence's wife or Melania Trump. You know, they're, mm. they're, they're, they're that different from one another. Mm-hmm. One is a all brain, all intellect, all um, uh, politics. The other is all sensuality, all um, appearance, all flirtatiousness and that kind of thing. Well, so Hillary Clinton and Don- Donald Trump. In a way, Donald, but mm. a prettier Donald. Um, and I don't think Mary was as much of a sociopath as Donald Trump is, to be honest with you, or had el- the same illusions. But I think she saw, she was pulled. She didn't, never wanted to be her jailer, never wanted to execute her. And she certainly um, went through a walking nervous breakdown when Mary was executed. She um, banished William Cecil, her closest advisor. She threw the guy who brought her the news into the tower and locked him up. She um, uh, basically wept and stormed about the palace and slammed doors and refused to eat for days and days and days. Um, it, It was a devastating experience for her. And I think she was yes, a person who felt a great deal. I think she had enormous self discipline, very hard working. Um and I think she was able to keep functioning despite all of that. But I think that as the years went on, what she had given up became clearer to her. And whilst I don't think she ever thought I, I could have had both, I think she knew quite clearly that for her it was an either-or decision, private life or public life. That doesn't mean that she wasn't fully aware of what she might have had and had failed to have. And yes, I think she was lonely. She certainly grieved terribly for Robin Dudley when he died, never really recovered from his death. And as all her advisors, she outlived almost everybody. And she was very, she was a great manager. You know, once she employed you, she picked carefully. Once she employed you, she didn't fire you. You stayed with her. And, um, so when they all died, which is how basically they left office, I think her grief was profound. Um, she hired almost always their children. So there was a sense of family that she created, even though she had absolutely no family um, eventually. So I think, yeah, she was, she was a remarkable human, not perfect by any means, and quite sad in a personal sense person, but... I don't know that it was possible to be a woman in that period of history and not have a miserable life, frankly. Mm. There's a lot of, always a lot of speculation, particularly around Elizabeth, and we've touched on some of it before, the issue of whether she lived her life as a virgin. I wonder, do you find conversations and speculative conversations around things like, say, mental health? Um, Joan of Arc is another one who, who suffers potentially from speculations around mental health. Is it useful? I mean, you have written Elizabeth from the first person, mm. so obviously you're getting into a head... In, a, in an era where mental health is still so stigmatised, does that liberate the possibility that she was a strong ruler who may have experienced profound mental health issues, or are people using it for other reasons? Do you find that useful? Do you find the conversation? I, I, we'll it, never know. I, I'm not at all sure <clears throat> that experiencing negative emotions equates to mental illness. But that's what I mean. When people speculate yeah. that it, it reaches the level of, of a clinical depression, is it useful to speculate when we can never know? I, does it does it empower? Does it 
it's it's a, it does no harm. You can mm. speculate anything you like, and it, it, it's entertaining, and people mm. enjoy. Did Henry VIII have uh, whatever that thing that makes you pee crimson is that George? That you know, there's all these different speculations on what they no, Should I Google that? Yeah, yeah. I think George the we don't want the mad, mad King George had mm. it as well. Porphyria. I think it might be porphyria. Anyway, um, there's lots of um, mm. you know hindsight diagnoses, but of course. The way that the medical profession recorded symptoms was very bizarre back then, yeah. so we can't really tell. I think it is perfectly reasonable that to to accept that um, Elizabeth the first, like every other human being who's ever occupied space on the planet, and certainly anyone who had a job as big and as, um, you know, uh, all-encompassing as hers and as stressful as hers, uh, experienced anxiety, experienced mm. depression. She was a famous insomniac. She uh, often lost her temper about small things while being very calm and steady over big things. Uh, she was highly irritable. Um, all of those things would indicate someone who, um, whose emotions someone sometimes overwhelmed her. I think she she was a, <clears throat> an utterly sane person. Mm. I think sanity was not her problem. Yep. She may have been neurotic, uh, but she was certainly sane. And given how poor her upbringing was, which I go into in great length in Just a Girl, had what a terrible, neglected, unloved childhood she had. The fact that she was so sane is extraordinary. Mm. Um, but I think she had the normal the normal miseries mm. that uh, anyone would have faced with that situation. Now, Jane, we're cursed to live in interesting times. But, <laughs> yeah, but so is she. But not as interesting as they could be, because as I read over my notes from three and a half years ago, uh, and when we spoke over Just a Queen, I realised that So we had, when we chatted, we talked about Elizabeth's struggle with a lack of female representation and peers in her cabinet. Now, here we are. Days out from Julie Bishop decrying the same circumstances yes. in her own party. You're, you're Elizabeth in Just Flesh and Blood. She mourns the loss of her peers, but I sensed a particular sense of loss for p- political sisters, um, people like Jane Grey. We're, we're talking about this still. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it's because when you come from a subordinate group mm. and women remain a subordinate group, then there are always only a very few of you who get to be in decision-making positions at any time. Now, you can either compete with those other women, and some people take that way of doing it, the queen bee, you know, I'll be the only woman at the table. But I think most women don't. I think that they look for um, um, a kind of company and companionship and solidarity with the few other women that are in a similar position to them. And it has always been thus. I mean, Catherine de' Medici and Elizabeth I had a, um, they wrote letters to each other constantly. They had a friendship. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots and Elizabeth were rivals for the same throne. That made it very difficult. But with, um, (coughs) pardon me, I've got a froggy voice today. With, um, with, um, Catherine de Medici, she never, they never met again, but they had this friendship, a supportive friendship. The other thing that reveals to me that the few peers she had, other queens, were important. And that's why, of course, chopping Mary Queen of Scots' head off was so awful. She, mm. she ended up killing a, a sister, you know, mm. and it was her closest living relative as well. Um, was that, uh, there's a, um, tapestries that all those queens owned, um, woven 
from the illustrations in a book written in 1405. This is how long feminism's been going that we know of. 1405 by a woman called Christine de Pizan, a French writer, who wrote about uh, the Book of the City of the Ladies, which is basically a feminist fantasy of a, 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 a city with the high walls to keep men out that only women were in, and they built it. Mm. And the um, tapestries are all of women pouring over blueprints and planing wood and, uh, you know, putting blocks of bricks into walls. I mean, it's, and they're dressed in their conical medieval hats. I mean, it's, it takes you to a place where you think, my goodness, they had seditious thoughts, just as we do now. And so I think that there was a sense of loneliness and separation because they could never meet. But there was also a sense of we have things in common. We know what it is to be this peculiar creature, a woman with power, in a world full of men who basically think that you're absolutely inferior. I mean, their attitudes to women were appalling. They didn't see them as much better than cows and um, who are constantly feeling that you are illegitimate in your position of power. I think exactly the same attitudes operate today. The liberal right does not take Julie Bishop seriously as a candidate for the leadership of that party because they don't take women seriously. They regard women in a very old-fashioned patriarchal way that women are supposed to cook meals, bear children and do what they're told. What we're discussing here, though, requires a complete rethink, not just of Liberal Party pre-selection, but the way we're actually running society, because you're talking about a collegial, not a figure-headed type leadership framework. I mean, it's, it is truly revolutionary, and that sort of thing is that's hard to get off the ground. Is there a critical mass we need to reach? Look, <clears throat> it's almost starting... It, it, the very reason that we're seeing people like Trump, who is manifestly unsuitable for the position he now holds that we are and we are seeing people like Nigel Farage and Steve Bannon and what's his name Duterte in Manila and Erdogan in Turkey is because in fact they are the last vestiges of that old style of white male straight white male control Duterte's not white but straight male control of societies. Um, in much the same way as in Elizabeth's time, the Catholic Church became much more uh, vicious after the Protestant Reformation. That's when the Spanish Inquisition, for example, mm. occurred uh, because it was desperately trying to hang on to the power that it had always had because it sensed it was losing it. Well, that's exactly what's going on now. Uh, the old uh, group privileged men generally, mm. who was just assumed they had fast on traitor leaderships of power, positions of power, have, have sensed that they are losing that, that mm. the other groups, people of colour, women, uh, LGBTQI people, are actually moving up. A friend of mine describes the feeling amongst um, older uh, blokes now, the more conventional type blokes, is um, the moving train effect. So if you've ever been on a stationary train at a mm. platform and a tr another train comes past you, you feel like you're going backwards even though you're not. You're staying still. It's simply mm. that the train is going by. And he says they're not going backwards, but it feels like they are be to them because other people are coming up and they're resisting like crazy. There's been some research come out just the last couple of days from Broad Agenda which says that uh, there's a backlash amongst millennial, if you believe in those things but anyway that's how they describe it millennial men who are saying that you know women are getting extra advantages that it's not fair they're being left behind that's actually not so demonstrably not so but that's what it feels like 
when you used to have all the advantages and now you're starting to find yourself in a more equal playing ground. Elizabeth was dealing with exactly those same pressures. Um, Julie Bishop is facing them. Uh, Hillary Clinton fell as a result of them. Uh, Julia Gillard probably fell as a result of them. But those pressures aren't going away, just as the Protestant Reformation didn't go away and eventually the Catholic Church ended up being just another branch of Christianity. It no longer had the complete power over all information and culture that it had had up until the um, 1500s. It broke up. And that mm. we're, in, we're going through the same sort of transition and for the same reason. Back then, it was because of the invention of the printing press. Now it's because of the inter- uh, invention of the internet. It's mm. technology that smashes power mm. bases every single time. And we're going through it now. And it is always a dangerous time to be alive because there is always a backlash and the backlash can be vicious. I'm speaking with Jane Carroll and we are discussing the third in her series on the life of Elizabeth I. It is just flesh and blood. And so as we come to terms with the fact that Elizabeth as a queen, was just flesh and blood. We also have to consider her legacy as the terrible legacy of Britain's colonial Mm -hmm. expansion. Yep. Did this come up in your research? And I'm assuming it did. Uh, (laughs) And do you have any thoughts on how Australia, battling with its history of invasion, might critically engage with this past? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to recognise the full humanity of all other people. Mm. Um, the trouble with colonisation, by its very definition, is that it doesn't. It, it operates with an idea of superior and inferior people. Mm. Um, Elizabeth I was a creature of her time. She may have been remarkable, but she certainly would have totally bought into the fact that the English were a superior race to all others, and she would have included the Spanish in the inferior lot as well. So there was an era of tribalism, and people were very tribal. And she would have seen uh, her expansion into the New World, particularly the Americas, which was where she predominantly went went first, as um, entirely reasonable. They were bringing civilization to savages, um, which is an important, from modern eyes, an appalling uh, perspective, but it was the perspective, and there's no point pretending it wasn't. Um, They were at that time, of course, the sort of buccaneers. They weren't actually, the Spaniards and the Portuguese were the people who were the big colonialists during Mm. England's time, and mostly what her navy did was... um, harass the Spanish Navy and steal all their gold, um, which built up her coffers. So she was a bit of a uh, – <clears throat> she really was a, a – she sponsored piracy mm. rather rather more than she sponsored colonialism Rally at that time. They yeah, were, they were pirates. They were just pir- yeah, pirates with Thieves. good press. That's right. That's right. They had a good PR behind them, but they were pirates. I feel like, I feel like a lot of people, though, when they uh, are confronted with this, they feel like critically engaging with it means throwing out any sense that this history is something that you can have as your own, something that you might want to feel like having English ancestry, you know, white ancestry means you're, you're somehow rubbish. Is there a way we can, we can skirt that line? Yeah, you have to recognise that all human history is the history of power and power imbalances and fight. The, I, look, maybe someone will tell me that when we were living in small villages and, or, or we were nomadic and wandering about, it was all lovely, but I doubt it was for women who would have been giving birth in horrible situations and were generally, um, you know, uh, very vulnerable. I, I, I think it was Louis C.K., someone else who's just been trashed in recent times, um, who said that... To be fair, he trashed himself. <laughs> he did trash himself, that is true. Yes, he behaved appallingly. But 
That doesn't mean that sometimes he wasn't funny or even wise. I mean, he said um, at one point, you know, this idea of a time machine, nobody would actually want to go back in a time machine unless they were a white man like me. Um, you know, you wouldn't, if you were a woman or a, or a person of colour, not much past 1960. That's where, you, that's where you'd want to get off. It gets pretty lousy after that. He's quite right. Mm. Um, and certainly there's no really good time to have been a woman anywhere until fairly recently, and that's contraception and reproductive rights that made all the difference to women's lives. And education makes an enormous difference, of course, to everyone's life if you get access to it. Um, we have to judge people of history in the context of their times because, you know what, we'll be judged in the context of ours, and I don't think we're going to come out of it well. Look what we're doing to the climate. Look what's happening to species extinction. I mean, let me tell you, Elizabeth's sins are going to pale in comparison to ours. So let's engage them with audience because we can't go back in time. So let's think about what's happening as we move forward. Your books are really interestingly, well, sorry, these three Elizabeth mm -hmm. books are really interestingly positioned as YA. Um, Elizabeth's 69 in this. I know. <laughs> now, that may seem an interesting position from for many YA readers, although I'm sure people would gobble up a 69-year-old Harry Potter book. Oh, um, of course. And Hermione would still be smashing it. Yeah. But how, what does that mean to you? And is it is it a good thing, a bad thing, a neutral thing to have a 69-year-old strong female YA protagonist? Well, it's a good thing because it's back to the same thing I keep banging on about all the time about everything. We're more similar than we're different. Mm. A 69-year-old human being mm. is still a human being inside themselves. They don't feel 69. Mm. They feel like they've always felt. Um, and so their life and experiences are important for us to engage with, whatever age we are. And I think we patronise young people appallingly by assuming that they can't imaginatively enter the world of someone who has lived a long life and imagine themselves as an elderly person looking back on their own life. Of course they can do that. Um, and we should give them every opportunity to do that because by saying, oh, young people simply can't identify with old people, well, that has appalling effects, in fact, for old people. That's why we have ageism and this kind of invisibility of the elderly in our community. Um, in Aboriginal societies, for example, elders are revered. Everybody listens to what they have to say. There is a real sense of connection between the old and the young. Why are we doing this? Oh, well, young people are just... And we sort of treat young people as if they will always be young and old people as if they've always been old. As someone who has turned 61 in the last few months, let me tell you, I don't care how old you are listening to this. I don't care how old you are when you read my books. You will be old faster than you ever dreamt possible at this moment. So to get into the mind of a 69-year-old woman from in 1603 is an exercise in empathy and imagination. And I would hope that the young of all eras are always up for an exercise of empathy and imagination. And far more than just an exercise in empathy, Jane Caro's Just Flesh and Blood is also a really fantastic read. I'm not going to discourage you from reading this, but to say that you should actually start at Just a Girl uh, and work your way through. Jane, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me. We are discussing Just Flesh and Blood. It's the third in the Elizabeth series, and I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. I loved coming. Thank yeah. you. That's it for this great conversation with Jane Caro. 
Just Flesh and Blood is the third and final instalment in Jane's Chronicles of the Life of Queen Elizabeth I and is out now from University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, why not recommend it to some friends? Help me help them discover fantastic Australian writing, and you can be known as their go-to for great new reads. If you want to keep up with the latest books, writing, and literary culture, find out when the next episode's coming out and what's coming up. Follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, even Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name's Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with next week for next week's with more great conversations from Final Draft.